0: are continuing through the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 13. Uh, we are walking through this passage um, that we started kind of last week um, as we resumed in Mark to start the year and uh, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read for us as you turn in your copy of God's word, Mark chapter 13. It's going to be verses 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. So 28 through 37. Once you have that, if you would stand as we read this together And just kind of lay out the scripture as our source this morning. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 28, it says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that we would be found uh, in your righteousness. Father, we pray that we would not seek to have a righteousness of our own, but that we would find that in Jesus there is sufficient righteousness. And Father, we do thank you for that. We thank you for the blood of Jesus poured out on our behalf that we can be cleansed and stand here as saints in your presence. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would exhort us to love and good deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Again, I just want to kind of put this back in context for us all again this morning. Jesus has uh, taught with authority, answering things that people have tried to trick him and lay traps for him. He's he's observed things in the temple. He uh, observed the widow's offering. He he's. Dist- teaching his disciples in these final moments, these days. It's probably Tuesday of the Passion Week, Tuesday, Wednesday, actually, I think. Um, And and as Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry and life on earth, uh, he's now gathered his disciples who laid out that question that we talked about last week as they observed and kind of pointed out to Jesus, hey, Man, do you see this temple? Is it not the most incredible thing? And Jesus, in a very sweeping sort of way, says, yeah, that temple, it's going to be destroyed. Not one block left upon another. And what begins with the what is today called the Olivet Discourse, which is where, uh, and that simply is, the, the term Olivet Discourse is, from the concept that they were sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple, and they asked Jesus, when's all this going to happen? How are we going to know? What are the signs and the the, the means that we're going to see this? And Jesus goes through and begins to explain all of it in what is oftentimes uh, can be a debated or confusing uh, subject, and I am not the answer. you know. I am not the one who, if you come to me and ask, well, what's the the end-time story, Nate? Uh, I can tell you some things that I've that I see, some things that I observe, some things that, in my limited understanding, I know. And regardless of your ex, regardless of your eschatology, which just simply means the study of end times, what you believe, the exhortation here is pretty much standard. Okay, and that's what we want to look at this morning. And I want to look at a couple of things here as we kind of, we we walked through the first 27 verses last week and Jesus kind of concludes that that, uh, section from last week, not the conclusion of the conversation, but talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And there's two things in regards to timing we want to talk about today and conclude with an exhortation from that. And the timing, I want to I talk about two things. First of all, verses 28-31 is what we know. Okay? What we know. What we can know. And it's the, starting in verse 28, let's just dive in. It says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. The lesson from the fig tree. Is it a lesson of nature? horticulture here. Significance is that uh, oftentimes the fig tree, which is a, I think they, this, I'm gonna like totally botch horticulture because I, I, although I grew up on a farm, I didn't pay attention to a lot of this stuff. Um, But it's a deciduous tree, is that right? You know, deciduous where it loses its leaves. And you know, aren't you impressed with my knowledge of horticulture this morning? It loses its leaves. Well, guess what? The fig tree is known to be one of the last ones to have its leaves come back. The fig tree is is one of the last ones. And so what Jesus is saying, a lesson that they would have all probably uh, been very easy to comprehend. Jesus is saying, hey, you wanted to know the answer. When will these things take place? And Jesus says, hey, when you start to see these things, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of the end. And Jesus says, in kind of concluding it, he says, and, and take this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its, branches, as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, what do you know? You know that summer is here. It's coming. It's just right around the corner. That, that's a basic understanding. But I'm not going to leave it there because I believe, now you can take this as Nate's belief, okay? I believe there's something more here. What do I mean? I think this is a parable. He says, from the lesson of the fig tree, learn this. There's something more. The the lesson idea. Woo, we got an apple alert there. (laughs) That when we hear that there is a lesson to be learned, that oftentimes means that there's an underlining parable. Okay? Uh, Okay. if you remember, just a day prior to this, the disciples learned a very important lesson about a fig tree. In fact, if you go back two days prior, you'll find that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem very early in the morning. He was hungry. Does it sound vaguely familiar? He comes across a fig tree that had its leaves, and he goes up to it, and he searches, and there's no fruit. So what does he do? He curses it, and, it, and, and then they go into the temple... And when they come back, they go back the next day, and the disciples say, oh, wow, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered away. Okay? I think there's a significant lesson here. And again, this is uh, just some thoughts on this. Entering Jerusalem was Seeing the fig tree, the fig tree is oftentimes a picture of Israel. Over and over again in Scripture, the picture of Israel is seen in the fig tree. That they, the, the parable of the vineyard is about a fig tree being planted. Over and over again, Israel is oftentimes referred to as a fig tree. And as they entered into the temple, there is a vivid picture for the disciples of the emptiness of the nation of Israel and a defunct religion as they walk into the temple, the center of religion, and find it is void of true spirituality. And so what does Jesus do? He condemns it. And he goes in and he actually cleans the temple out. What a, what a, uh, there's a lot going on in this whole, this whole story. And, and I think that the, the idea that Jesus is saying from the fig tree learn this lesson, there is something I think for us today. Because we would find that in about 40 years from this, the dis- city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. The nation of Israel would be dispersed, gone. No more living in the land. Until. Jesus says, when you see its leaves, you know that summer is near. When it has budded, And so oftentimes we look at verses like verse 30 and we say, well, how does this fit? Because Jesus is talking to to the disciples and he says, until this generation pass away. We talked a little bit about that last week, but I think there is something else you could take away from it that oftentimes that Greek word for generation can be and is often translated as race or tribe. Okay, so there's something going on here that I, I, I believe that as we look at it and, and, and we talk about getting prepared and, and don't worry, you don't have to pick up your stones. I'm not going to predict the end of the world or anything like that this morning, but I think there is something here as a sign that as we kind of gather and look around, there is a reality that, that in 1948, a nation miraculously was born in one day, the nation of Israel recognized by the world and nations that today would never recognize Israel as a nation. But I find it very fascinating that, that until this generation passes, which can often and is often and is recognized by many theologians as a race or a tribe, until it has returned, the fig tree, brothers and sisters, we are definitely closer And I know this sounds corny to say, but we are definitely closer today than ever before in history. It's fascinating to look at the the theological implications and the the understandings of men who took this passage and would literally translate it to mean that the nation of Israel would come back. And you look at some of the reformers and some of their ideas, and, and as they looked at things, they had no concept of Israel. There is a dangerous theology out there that's called replacement theology that says that we are now, as a church, the new nation of Israel. That is not the case if you translate the Bible literally. Martin Luther was asked back in the uh, 1500s, the reformer Martin Luther was once asked whether the Jews of his time were still children of Abraham. His answer, if the Jews are Abraham's descendants, then we would expect them where? Back in their own land. But we do not see that. We see them living scattered abroad and despised. I find it interesting, Mark Twain, in talking about the Jews, he says... The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all. Beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no showing of his energy slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All these things are mortal, but the Jew, all other forces pass, but he remains. Listen to this, what is the secret of his immortality? Bishop Ryle, JC. Ryle in regards to this, says, Now how shall we account for this extraordinary state of things? And talking about the end times, he says, How shall we explain the unique and peculiar position which the Jewish people occupy in the world? Why is it that unlike Saxons and Danes and Normans and Flemings and the French, this singular race still floats alone, though broken into pieces like a wreck? This is before Israel became a nation again. On the waters of the globe, amidst its one uh point five or 15 million inhabitants after the lapse of 18,000 years it is neither destroyed and speaking of the jewish nation people it is neither destroyed nor crushed nor evaporated nor amalgamated, nor lost of sight rather it lives to this day as separate and as distinct as it was in the arch when the arch of titus was built in rome god has many witnesses to the truth of the bible if men would only examine them and listen to their evidence, but you may depend on it. There is no witness so unanswerable as one whom he always keeps raising up, enlivening, and moving before the eyes of mankind. That witness is a Jew. There's something significant in all of this. Could it be that the return of Israel as a nation is a sign that the end is near? Maybe. I'm not going to jump to specific conclusions, but I do believe there is something significant that we want to look around and say, how do we know we're getting closer? Well, brothers and sisters, God has scattered a people for thousands of years and miraculously in one day brought them back to a nation. To come back after nearly 2,000 years is nothing short of miraculous. And he says, all these things will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we can ask ourselves, what do we know about the coming of the Lord? Well, we know, and I believe that that what this is telling us, the lesson of the fig tree, is that when Israel comes back as a nation, guess what? The times are a coming. That's what I believe. You you don't have to take it to the bank. You don't have to to hold me up as some expert on the end times. I'm not going to proclaim that, but this is what I see in Scripture, and I'm convinced of it. But it goes on. He says, but concerning, I want to talk now about what we do not know. But concerning that day or that hour, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So we don't know the specific timing. We can see the signs, but we don't know the specific timing. I find it amazing today, in this day and age, that people are still predicting the end of the world in spite of the fact that Jesus himself said, no one knows, Brothers and sisters, you want to find uh, some interesting study sometime is look at the amount of times that people have predicted the end of the world and have been wrong every single time. I mean, you can go through a countless list of people and some people whom you might even respect. But I mean, you've got you've got the Jehovah Witnesses who have predicted the end of the time six times. They've been oh for 6 uh, uh, you remember maybe Harold Camping with all his, his billboards that said that the, the Aztec Mayan calendar and, and association with that and some other things, and, and you'll find that most of the time it's all this numerolo, numerological, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, numbers, adding it all up and dividing Daniel's weeks and calculating all this stuff, you come up with a specific date. I mean, we all know the end of the world is next year. On December thirteenth, after my birthday. <laughs> Listen, nobody knows, and I don't see how you can't read Scripture and not comprehend it. But we still try and guess, and we still try and calculate it. Listen, what Jesus says here: the angels don't know. They're going to participate. They're going to help in bringing the end of the world. They're going to—they're going to be a part of that. But they don't know. Nor the Son. In fact, this is the only time in Mark that Jesus actually refers to himself as the Son. And and we're going to sit here and we're going to contemplate. I'm not going to spend time on it this morning, but contemplate in our own minds how is it that Jesus can be part of the Trinity, can be fully God, fully man, and yet not know. Here's my only possible explanation. There is a contrast between the Son and the Father here. And Jesus in his Sovereignty chose to withhold this information from himself. If that's not satisfactory explanation for you, I can't help you. That's what I can come up with. That Jesus withheld the information from... Because guess what? If Jesus would have told all of us, by the way, uh, December thirteenth, two 2020 is going to be when I come back. You know what humanity would do until December 13, 2020? They would live like the devil. And then on December 12, 2020, everybody would try and get their lives right and prepared for Jesus returning. That's not what he intended. In fact, we have, as a result, a sanctifying, glorious, purifying hope that we hold on to as we prepare and await. But I want to look at this the response of Jesus, and I want to I spend some time talking about what we do not know and what we are informed of. We are living closer than ever before, so what is our response? Jesus tells us four times in these four verses, watch, watch. Three times it is a present imperative, which simply means it is a command. It is not a suggestion. Brothers and sisters, this is a command. That he not only, by the way, you can't even just say it's just for the disciples because he closes it by saying, I say this to you, but I don't just say it to you, I say it to all. That includes us. And what is that command? Watch. We should be watching, by the way, it is in the tense of a continuous action. We should be watching all the time to be sleepless. Do not be ignorant, in other words, of the things going on around you. You, He kind of lays out for us, these are some signs of things that are going to happen. And and you should be uh, alert to it. You should be watching. You should not be distracted. So he starts out in verse 32, and he says, uh, Concerning the time you don't know, neither do I and, and we talk about that, um, but we have a purifying hope. We are living in the expectancy of his return. And he goes on, he says in verse 33, is when he starts giving the response. So if you don't know when I'm coming again, this is what you should be doing, okay? That's what he's saying. Verse 33, be on guard, be on guard, keep awake, for you not know when the time will come. And he tells us a parable. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So what is this parable? There's a couple of things that I think is fascinating in regards to this, that some context that even makes it even more fascinating is you keep in mind. I think we talked about this at the very beginning of Mark that that it's written by Mark, but told to him by Peter. That sound vaguely familiar? Peter most likely was telling Mark uh, the story of Jesus and telling Mark the the you know obviously we believe the Holy Spirit inspired it and that's where the source of it is. But he's heavily influenced by Peter. And I can't help but think of this, this, this awake, this stay awake, and how important it must have been for Peter as he's rehearsing the story to Mark. Because Mark wouldn't have been there, so where did he hear the story of what's going on? And the things that Peter probably caught on to, and the things that stuck in his mind. And I'm convinced that this awake part was a huge part. Why? If you turn one page over to Mark chapter 14, I think there's some insight. Starting at verse 34, we have the story of Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he calls his disciples, and he says to Peter, James, and John, the three, uh, he's pulled them aside, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and what? Watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour uh, might pass. I'm going to skip forward to verse 37. It says, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to them, Peter! Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he comes back. And what does he find? The third time he came and said to them, I'm sorry, he came back in verse 40, he came again and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come Peter's influence consider his life experiences that you imagine the devastation that Peter must have felt as he considered everything post fact that Jesus the Messiah his beloved friend had asked him hey would you just pray with me my soul my soul is in anguish and we need I want you to watch watch and pray And Jesus comes back and he finds them asleep. He says, can't you guys stay awake? And he says, just stay and pray with me. And he goes away and he comes back and they're sleeping again. And he does it a third time. He comes back and he finds them sleeping again. It is no wonder that this would have stuck in the mind of Peter as he's rehearsing the story to to Mark. The reality is it is a great temptation while we are waiting for the return of Jesus to fall asleep on the job. It is a massive temptation to get distracted with things that are nonsense. I think back to, to some great literary works that have some incredible analogies in it. You think of the, the Odyssey, of, of, of the Homer's Odyssey, and, and here you have the story in the Odyssey where uh, Odysseus is on his way back. He's trying to get home to his wife and his son, and he's, he's on his way, and they come to a place where the land has lotus eaters. And I don't know what lotus eaters are. I think they're called fruit of some sort. And if you eat them, your cares of life just disappear, and they begin to eat of the lotus flowers or fruit, whatever. And before long, Odysseus realizes he forgets the name of his wife. He forgets the name of his son. And they spend many, many times, much time there. And eventually he is awakened and remembers and he gets the guys to stop and they go on their way. I think of Uh, uh, the the Wizard of Oz, right, where where they're coming to the Golden City or the Emerald City, not Parkview, but the Emerald City, and, and they get there, and on their way, they have to cross through the poppy field, and they begin to lay down and enjoy everything. How easy is it for us to fall asleep when Jesus has said, hey, be alert, be on your guard, watch, stay awake, The foolish virgins in Matthew chapter 25 and the wise virgins, you'll find they both fell asleep waiting for the bridegroom to come. And he comes and he awakens them. How do we stay alert? How do we uh, do this? How do we watch? I think there is a key here. The assistance is prayer. Brothers and sisters, I know you probably think I harp on this all the time because I talk about the importance of prayer, but brothers and sisters, there is nothing more important. Jesus spent hours in prayer over and over again. You find in scripture, he withdrew, why? To pray so that he could stay in communion with the Father, so he could stay on target, so he could stay on mission because he knew how easy it would be to find things to go and do, maybe even good things, ministries and various things. But if he didn't stay focused and stay in communication with the Father, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he tells a parable of this persistent widow. And it starts out with this, this very statement that Jesus tells them a parable that they ought always to pray and not grow weary and faint. Brothers and sisters, our key to success in staying alert, as Jesus told the disciples, as he pulled those three aside, he says, stay and watch and pray. Prayer is essential. It is not negotiable. It is the essence of the Christian walk of faith. You must pray and watch because prayer helps us to concentrate on the very things we need to stay alert to. It always puts in mind those people that we are praying for, that we need to concentrate on, that we need to stay focused on, that we need to have as our utmost priority, that we are praying for the hearts and needs of people to come to see Jesus. Watch and pray. And then Jesus tells this parable, and he starts, it's like a man going on a journey of course, we can connect that, that. That's the son of man going on a journey. He's going away and he's going to come back. And he tells it says that he tells everyone, his servants, uh, uh, verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. We are all his servants. We have responsibilities. We have things to do. But then he turns to the door This servant in charge, he his own work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper, it, it would have been something they would have connected with. If you look in the Old Testament, you can read about the, the Levites were the doorkeepers. They were the ones who stood guard at the door, and they would, what their job was was to keep defilements and to keep uncleanness and to keep uh, uh, false teachings out of the temple. That was their job. In in David's time, there were 4,000 doorkeepers. In fact, David talks about the doorkeeper. He says in Psalm 84, verse 10, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. It was a position of high honor. They would watch the doctrines and, and the uncleanness and prevent it. They guarded the door to the temple. Brothers and sisters, we are all to be doorkeepers as we await the return of the Lord. Guarding. As, as you know, we look at this church, we talk about pastors and elders, one of their number one jobs is to guard the doors of this church, meaning the doctrines and the, and the, the things that come in, the teachings and, and the ministries that go on. That is the, one of the number one jobs that we have, to shepherd and to care and to protect and to stay alert. How do you stay alert to those things? How do you know when, when uh, uh, ungodly doctrines creep in if you are not alert, if you have fallen asleep on the job? Husbands, fathers, you have a responsibility to guard your homes to protect them from, from ungodliness entering in. Moms, you have that responsibility with your children to guard them and to, to, to watch over, to be aware of what's coming in. We can, if, if I leave my children unattended to the Internet, let me tell you, the Internet is not evil in and of itself, but you can find yourself in a very, very quick moment allowing all kinds of debauchery in. Keep our families, our loved ones, our churches from the nonsense of this world as the day approaches. He names the four watches of the night here, you'll notice. In the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, these are the four watches of the night that the Jewish person would have known about. The doorkeeper's primary watch, his time, was at night. Brothers and sisters, it is dark right now. The day is far spent, we heard in Romans 13. And no matter your belief in regards to eschatology, the fact of our responsibility to watch cannot be removed. And it is this, a constant attitude of alertness, prayer, and waiting with expectation. And I mentioned it already. Jesus concludes by saying, and what I say to you, to the disciples, I say to all, stay awake. So how do we apply this? How do we take this and apply it to our lives? I think number one, we can understand that the timing isn't specific, but the facts are visible that a day is coming when Jesus will come back and he will judge the world in righteousness and he will claim his bride. To those who are in Christ, to those who have said, I have put my hope in his return, I have put my hope in the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross to take away my sins, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, this is not a fearful thing. But it is a hope that we look forward to. I think so oftentimes we we hear some of these things too, and we put an undue pressure on ourselves by saying, well, I want to make sure that when he comes back, he doesn't find me doing X. There is truth to that. When, when Jesus comes back, I don't want to be found in some uh, uh, sinful manner. that there is that truth, Yes, but the reality is, we look forward to His coming back and we await His coming back with joy and expectation and excitement because our bride is coming for us. And we want to be about His business for those who, who are not in Christ, for those who, have, who, who are sitting here today even, who can honestly evaluate their life and say, you know what, I have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the facts. There is a day coming. I don't know when it will be. But this whole world and everything you see, as Jesus said about the temple, it will be destroyed. And He will judge the world in a righteous judgment. And the fact of the matter is, we are told in Romans that that it is this simple, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, that he paid the penalty for your sins, and you put your hope in that, you can have eternal life. And I would pray that if there's anyone here today, that that would be your prayer. That today would be a day where you would come and say, I want to make my life right with him. What else to watch? This is a difficult one. I think it's difficult because we ask the question, what things are distracting you from your responsibility to watch and pray? What things are distracting you from what you're supposed to be doing? They can be good things. Life. Family. Ministries, they can also be little things like hobbies, pastimes. What are the things that distract us from the responsibilities that we have to watch and to pray, to await, to protect, to guard the, the, you know, the, the hearts of our, our family, to guard our own hearts, to prevent sin and ungodliness from entering in? How would you live? This is the question I would ask. How would you live differently if you always thought about the fact that Jesus could return at any moment? How would you live differently if you thought about the fact that Jesus could return literally at any moment? Would you really care about fill in the blank? I struggle with this. You know how I can evaluate my own heart so oftentimes each and every morning? What's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning? Is it to find out who won the football game last night? Or is it to spend time with the Lord? It's not that some of these things are bad, but we are a distracted society. We are a distracted people. I have, I personally have the attention span of a circus monkey. I don't remember which Disney movie it is, but it's about the dog who who sees a squirrel. He's like, squirrel! I can't stay focused. I need prayer to keep me focused. It's no wonder Jesus repeats over and over again in talking about the end times coming. Take heed. Beware. Be on guard. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Why? Because he knows our tendencies. He knows our our minds are tending to, to go. We are distracted people. Again, going back to the Odyssey, it's one of my favorite uh, secular books. Uh, In the Odyssey, there's a story of of when Odysseus is traveling, and and he knows that this place is coming up with these creatures called the sirens. And if you listen to the beauty of their song, you are drawn to them. And then they will devour you. And Odysseus knows that this is coming, so what does he do? He takes all of his crew and he ties them to the ship and he puts beeswax in their ear. I think that might be where the term mind your own beeswax comes from, but I don't know. And he puts beeswax in their ears so that they can't hear, so that they are not drawn and taken away. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. It is sweeter than honey and we should be consuming it on a daily basis and we should be spending time giving our ear to one alone and that is Jesus because otherwise we will be drawn by the sweet siren of this world. Look at our society and all its causes. I learned some new phrases this week. I thought about titling my sermon hashtag woke. I thought that meant getting up in the morning, but apparently it doesn't. There are so many distractions. There is social injustice everywhere. Guess what? Got news for you. There always has been. There always will be. You can be awoken to that from eternity past. It's pretty funny, isn't it, Stephen? (laughs) Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. There is no politician that is the answer. Not... Not Trump, not uh, Obama, not any politician is never the answer, only Jesus. The church can lose sight on its one objective so quickly, which is to preach the gospel and that he is coming back soon. The world doesn't need social and political justice. Those are fine things. Don't get me wrong. Don't go home and say, Pastor Nate doesn't believe in giving to the poor or taking care of the social injustices of the world. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is those delectable things that are nice and make you feel good can easily distract you from the one objective, which is to preach the gospel and that Jesus is coming back. The world doesn't need social and political justice. It needs godly justice through a savior named Jesus Christ. So my challenge is this. What are the things distracting you from your responsibility to watch and pray? And get rid of them. What are the things that draws us away from the one thing that is most important to watch, to be on guard, to be alert to the the things that are going on around us so that we are staying focused on the task that we would preach the gospel and that Jesus is our only hope and salvation and to remind people that he is coming back. I don't know when, and neither does Jesus, so stop trying to guess whoever's trying to guess out there. I don't think anybody in here is. I haven't heard anybody, thankfully. But know that we can get so distracted. Isn't it funny? Eschatology in and of itself can be a distraction to the one task. Stay awake. And how do you stay awake? Stay in prayer. Praying always. Why? So that you don't faint and grow weary. Stay awake. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that no matter what happens... That if you come and you take your church, your bride, and and rapture them before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation, it doesn't matter. We are called to stay awake. And Lord, I pray that if there are distractions in our life, if there are things that are clamoring for our attention, if there are things that are drawing us and, and causing us to not stay focused upon you, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray that we would have a heart to stay in prayer and communication with you. Lord, I pray that our heart would be so fixed on you that all the distractions of this life would vanish away. That the things of earth would grow dim. Lord, I know for myself and I'm sure for many here that it is so easy to be drawn away. And Lord, it is easy to sit here and think of all the things that we have been caught up in and and lost sight of the reality of the importance of of your bride and to lose reality of of what is important in relationship with you. Lord, I know it is easy to, to evaluate our hearts and to see that and then linger in the guilt Lord, your word promises us that we confess our sin. You are faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we lay before you the things that that have taken our attention and and we have given wholly our attention to them. And Lord, may we walk circumspect. May we walk with alertness in a day that is, is drawing near. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you love us so much that you are coming back for your bride. We give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.